Well, now that I've got your attention, <laughs> it's great to have everyone here today. I'm Bill Allen. I'm the preaching minister here at West Irwin. Many of you are part of our church family here. Uh, many others are wonderful new neighbors and friends that we're going to get to know uh, this weekend. So we want to give you a very warm welcome and, uh, and express our gratitude uh, to you for being here for our Defending the Truth uh, seminar and this wonderful time that we'll spend together uh, with Kyle, and I'll share more about him in just a moment. A few things, just a couple of housekeeping things. If you haven't registered yet, please feel free to do so. Uh, there are wonderful gift bags uh, back there that include a notebook that you can use to make notes on and a pen and several other items in there. And so we want to share that with every adult that's here uh, today. So if you're an adult, then be sure and pick one of those up. Uh, wives, no fair telling the registration ladies that your husband is not an adult, okay? We don't wanna, we're not gonna go there at all today. Uh, we will be having uh, lunch. Uh, we'll go across uh, the way uh, to our Family Life Center immediately after this session. We ask that you use the crosswalks if you can because we'll have a lot of people and it is Saturday. And so there'll be a little bit more traffic out there. Our safety team members, you'll see them with their yellow badges. Uh, throughout our facilities, and they will be sure that we're uh, safe going across the street as well as throughout uh, the weekend. There will be a photo booth across uh, at the Family Life Center during our lunchtime, and so you're welcome uh, to uh, uh, have a photo memory of your time with us uh, this weekend. Um, there is a resource table you've probably seen out in the foyer. You're welcome to peruse through that and talk with Davey and Sonia there. Davey is uh, one of our associate ministers here, and, uh, and so be sure and go by there and check that uh, out. Um, again, it is wonderful to have everyone here, and uh, we feel very, very blessed to have our speaker, Kyle Butt of Apologetics Press. Uh, Kyle has been educated formally at Fried Hardeman University he has an MDiv, a Master of Divinity in Apologetics, also a Master's Degree in New Testament Studies, and a Bachelor's Degree in Bible and Communications. He met our Kelly and Heather Monahan at Fried Hardeman uh, University, and so we appreciate uh, that relationship as well. Apologetics Press has been around since the 1970s. Kyle has been with them uh, for over 20 years. And uh, he's written 35 books, uh, numerous video uh, DVDs, and other uh, video uh, uh, resources. He's been involved in at least three major debates uh, with unbelievers. He is the editor of the children's monthly publication, Discovery Magazine. And there are uh, samples of that out in the uh, four-year copies of that that you can see as well. Uh, Kyle and his wife, Bethany. Uh, have three children, two boys and a girl, and they are all in high school. And so be sure and let your family know, brother, we are very grateful for them letting us have you uh, this weekend. Uh, at this time, one of our shepherds, Jay Bynum, uh, will lead us in our prayer, and then we'll let Kyle have the session. Again, let me add to uh, what Bill said. Uh, we appreciate everyone's attendance today. Uh, if you're visiting with us especially, uh, you're a welcome guest. Uh, and from the eldership, we, we really appreciate all the involvement in, in putting this weekend together. It's been a lot of 
a lot of activity at the building through the last several weeks and uh, a lot of people involved with that and we appreciate their time and effort and their talent in taking care of the areas of, of interest that they needed to. Again, uh, we're welcoming Kyle and I appreciate him being here today. Let's begin with prayer. Holy Father, we're, we're thankful to you for all the blessings of, of life, of this life and of our, our spiritual life. Father, we're thankful this morning for, uh, for Kyle and for sending him to us. And we're thankful for men like him that can, can defend the truth and can give us tools to, to do that with in our daily walk with you. Father, we're thankful for, uh, for the world that you've created for us. More importantly, Father, we're thankful for the spiritual world that you've created for us that we'll have the opportunity to, to spend eternity with you. Father, again, uh, we pray that you'll bless Kyle this weekend in his, his speaking and be with his family while he's, he's away and give him safe travel back home. Father, we're thankful for each person here today that uh, has an interest in learning more from your word and more about creation and more how to defend our, our belief that you are the one, the true and only God and that you did create all things for us. Again, Father, uh, bless this Week, this weekend, uh, bless uh, the session at this time, and Father, those that uh, will, those uh, sessions that will be coming next, in Jesus' name, amen. So Johnny's teacher, Monday, showed up, and she asked the class, she said, class, did you guys do anything exciting or fun this weekend? Little Johnny's sitting on the front row, always wants to be the one that's called on. And she said, yeah, Little Johnny, what did you do? He said, well, we went fishing, me and my dad did. She said, really? How did you go fishing? Did you just fish off the bank or did you have a boat? Or He said, well, I had my dad's little eight-foot John boat and we went fishing. She said, how did you do? He said, oh, we did great. Wore them out, caught a caught hundred fish. Well, now, Johnny was prone to slight exaggeration, and she said, you caught 100 fish. Wow, that is amazing. How much did they weigh? He said, every one of them weighed 100 pounds apiece. <laughs> she said, you caught 100 fish, and they all weighed 100 pounds apiece, and you were in your dad's little John boat. You know the weight limit on those things is about 550 pounds. That would be 10,000 pounds of fish, little Johnny. Do you want to change your story? No, ma'am. We caught 100 fish. Every one of them weighed 100 pounds. We put them all in the boat at the same time. She said, Johnny, that's crazy. What if, what if I just made stuff up? Like I'm on my way to school in my little Prius Toyota and a big 10-foot tall grizzly bear comes out of the woods and starts shaking my car and it's about to get me and this little two-pound chihuahua comes from the other side, jumps up, grabs it by the nose, flips it over, beats it up and chases it off. Would you believe that? He said, yes, ma'am. He said, that's my dog. <laughs> well, 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 we'll try not to exaggerate things this morning. I am so appreciative of you being here and so thankful for the eldership and the congregation that has put so much work into this. And I'm excited, thrilled, in fact, to be able to talk to you about the idea that I consider to be, well, I think you would consider to be probably the very most important idea Maybe we should say the most important person in the entire 
concept of the universe and everything that is in it, and that is the idea of God. Now, you've got two ideas that we're going to be comparing here. One of them goes like this. In the beginning was matter, and matter begot the amoeba, and the amoeba begot the worm, and the worm begot the fish, the fish begot the amphibian, the amphibian begot the reptile, the reptile begot the lower mammal, the lower mammal begot the lemur, the lemur begot the monkey, the monkey begot the man who imagined God. This is the genealogy of man. Now that is almost a verbatim quote from an atheist by the name of Charles Smith. And in essence, it gives you the atheistic idea that this physical material world is all that there is and all that there was and all that there ever will be. In fact, what we're told now in most of our science textbooks as to the origin of the universe is that some 13.82 billion years ago, there was something that's called a singularity that was 10 to the negative 26 centimeters across. It would have been so small that you couldn't even have seen it with the unaided eye. And it exploded in what is commonly referred to as the Big Bang. And that initial Big Bang shot into the universe an expanding group of hydrogen atoms that then coalesced into stars that they then exploded and brought all of the elements that we see into the world that are here and then some, about 5 billion years ago, about 4.8, I think they say, or so, the earth was coalescing out of space dust around the sun, and something like a chemical soup of, of amino acids and different things that were actually of elements that somehow lightning struck it and caused the first single-celled life to form, and then that single-celled life changed to all other kinds of life that we have on planet earth. And that's the atheistic idea, the proposition that there's nothing more than this material world and the things we see happening in this material world can answer everything that we have in existence. 22 million people right now in the United States of America believe that, at least 22 million, and that was the last I checked actually probably several years ago. So it's probably to 25, 30 million Unbelief is the fastest growing religion in the United States of America. Now, there's another idea I'd say some of you are familiar with as well. It goes something like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God divided the light from the darkness. And the light he called day, the darkness he called night, and an evening and a morning, day one. And then subsequently, day two, God creates the expanse, the sky and the heavens, and day three, the flowers and the grass and the trees, day four, the sun, moon, and the stars, day five, birds and fish, flying and swimming creatures, day six, land creatures and humans, creates Adam from the dust of the ground, breathes into him the breath of life takes from Adam a rib after Adam has seen the parade of other creatures that are not suitable helpers for him, puts him to sleep, takes from him a rib, crafts for him the perfect helper suitable to him, Eve, the first week of creation, and God ceases his creative activity on day seven. I would say that you're familiar with that story. Now, the question is simply which of these is correct, because they can't both be. One of them is right and one of them is wrong. 
And what we're told lots of times is that religious people have a faith in their idea of a creator God, an all-powerful, supernatural creator God, but they can't prove God exists. In fact, what we're told is that God is not a scientific idea. And we're then presented with this other idea of that atheistic, naturalistic mechanism of a huge explosion. And we're told that that is a scientific idea. And so they say, if you want to believe in God, you can, but you can't believe in God because of any scientific evidence. You just have to believe in God by faith. And when they say something like by faith, it sounds good to start out with because if you've read your Bible, you know that faith is something that a person has to have. But the problem is the definition that they present on faith is not the biblical definition. The biblical definition of faith has never been the idea that you accept something blindly without evidence. The biblical faith is you look at the evidence that you have and come to a conclusion that you can know even though you haven't seen it. So what I'd like to challenge this morning is the idea that God is not a scientific idea. And see, we're told that God is not a scientific idea because you can't touch, see, taste, hear, or smell God directly. You can't do an experiment on God. You can't put him in a controlled situation. You can't measure how big God's arm is. You can't weigh how heavy God is in mass. And so we're told there's no way that God is a scientific idea because you just can't see God hear God, touch God, taste God. You can't do anything with your five senses to recognize that he's there. And so if you'll read modern definitions of science, they will tell you that science is answering questions with a naturalistic explanation. Basically, they say that science is where you use experimentation only on things that you can touch, see, taste, hear, or smell. Now, here's the problem with that. The problem with that is, historically, that's never been science. You have people like Sir Isaac Newton that have brought to us an entire branch of physics, Newtonian physics. But did you know Sir Isaac Newton wrote more about the Bible than he did about science? And he certainly didn't think that scientific explanations were explanations that dealt with solely naturalistic ideas. In fact, he had the correct definition of science. And what I'd like to suggest to us all is that there is a correct definition of science. And that definition is finding the answers that best explain the evidence, regardless of whether they are natural or supernatural. And so as you deal with this idea of a scientific concept and you look back 50 years, 60 years, 100 years, 150 years, some of the brightest minds in the world recognize that science is never constrained to only a certain category of answers. Now think about it like this. Suppose that you were given a challenge. There was a person's backyard and in the backyard you found an apple and that apple had what appeared to be a very clear human bite mark out of it. And someone came to you and said, hey, we want you to find why this apple has a missing piece out of it. But you can't say that a human bit it. Okay, so now you've limited 
the scope of what you can and can't say. Now, let's say we pick up that apple, and sure enough, it looks like it has a dental pattern that is human, and so you knock on the door to the person's yard that owns this particular art, and you say, hey, uh, you know, just interestingly, I found this apple, and I've been challenged to find out what took the bite out of it or what took the chunk out of it. You mind if I see your dental records? And, you know, this person happens to be cooperative and wants to be involved in the little project you're doing. So she says, yeah, here's the dental record. So you get the dental record from the owner, and they match perfectly. And then it just so happens you take a sample of some liquid that was from the apple, and it has some DNA in it, and you make a DNA match to the owner. You then powder it for fingerprints, and you see that there is a partial fingerprint that matches the thumbprint of the owner perfectly, and you're about to explain to the person exactly what you think happened, that the owner of the house took a bite out of the apple, held it with his or her thumb right here in this particular place, threw it into the backyard, and the person says, mm, we said you have to do this without referring to a human. So while you might have quite a bit of evidence that points in that direction, you're going to have to come up with a totally new explanation because we've defined all humans out of this discussion. Okay, so now what do you say about the chunk that came out of the apple? Maybe it fell just right and hit the bark on the tree and that bark made a mark that looked exactly like a human bite mark, but you don't know why it would and no apple falling out of a tree has ever done that, but in this case it must have done that because we can't say that a human did it. And then the DNA that matches the human owner perfectly, well, we're going to have to say that that was contaminated DNA from some type of animal because although we've never seen that happen, it has to be because in this case we can't use a human. You see what happens? What happens when you define a very good answer out is that you limit the scope of science. And so what I'd like to suggest, and I think you all would recognize, is that a scientific answer is not the best naturalistic answer. Because lots of times the best naturalistic answer is a very, very poor answer. The scientific idea is the best answer. That explains all of the evidence, whether natural or supernatural. Now, we will then be challenged with this idea, yeah, but okay, you can't ever see God, and so because you can't taste, hear, smell God, then you won't be able to know anything about God, and so you won't be able to use him as a scientific answer. Well, that's not true again, and we never do science like that. Now, let's go back to our apple situation, or let's even adjust it slightly, and let's say we're on a beach and we see some footprints. And we look down at those footprints, and they are making a pattern going right down the beach. And we look up the beach, we don't see anything. We don't see any animals, we don't see any people. We just see a line of footprints going down the beach. Can we know anything about the entity that made these prints without ever seeing that person or animal or, or anything like that? Sure we can. So let's see what we might could know about a being, an entity that made these footprints. So we decide, okay, we're going to find out who or what made these footprints. And we look and we see that each one of the prints, it looks like there's a right foot and a left foot, and each one of them has an imprint of five toes. One larger there at the left part of the foot, one smaller there at the right side of the foot. And then we look and there's an arch right there on the print where the toes go in deeper and the heel goes in deeper so that there's an arch. So number one, we just count the 
toe prints on these footprints, and we can see that there's five on one foot, five on another foot, so now we have ten toes on these footprints that we see. So can we know how many toes the entity, the person that made these footprints have? Well, no, you can't. You've never seen the person. Ah, see, what we understand is that just because you haven't ever seen the person doesn't mean you can't know anything about the person. In fact, if you had enough information and you had the right equipment and you had the right tools and things of that nature, if you had statistics, say, for how tall a person is based on how big their stride is, how many inches. And so you looked at this person and you could see they had five toes on each foot. They had an arch that was middle. It wasn't a flat foot, wasn't overarched. And then they were about mm, 18 inches apart. And you had the statistics that would tell you, generally speaking, a person who is 5'8 has an 18-inch foot length spread, stride spread. And then you measured the foot. And it was a size seven and a half women's, size six and a half men's. And then if you had enough equipment and you knew the density of the sand and you knew how long these footprints had been there based on how much the water had come up or not, you could measure the depth to which the prints had sunk based on the density of the sand and you could know an approximate weight of the person. So now all you've got is footprints. That's all you have. And yet you know how many toes the person had. You know what their arch looked like. You know how big their foot was. You know what their stride was, so you know their approximate height. And if you had the right equipment, you know their approximate weight. And yet you've never seen the person. But you can know some things about them, can't you? You know, our whole discipline of forensic science works just exactly like that. You go to a crime scene and you don't see the criminal. Now, nobody ever says, hey... Don't see the criminal, so there's nothing we can know about him. We're just going to have to leave this alone because the criminal's gone. You can't touch, see, taste, hear, or smell the criminal, so you just don't know anything about the criminal, and we're stuck. Oh, no, forensic science goes to the scene, and they look for, what do they look for? Tire marks, DNA, a little piece of a cloth that the criminal might have left, a little piece of a fingerprint that might be on something there. They look for things that the criminal left and they can know things about the criminal having never seen. They can know what gum that criminal chewed. They can know what the blood sugar of that criminal was. They can know what the fingerprint, what the DNA was and never see the criminal. Is it true that you can know things about a person having never seen that person or other entity? Absolutely positively. Now, I'm going to quote for you a Bible verse, and I'm not going to quote it in any sense to prove the existence of God. We're going to do that scientifically this morning. But what I am going to quote this verse for you, the reason for that is to show you that the biblical writers completely understood the concept of forensic evidence pointing to the best explanation. Romans chapter 1. For since the invisible... For since the beginning of creation, verse 20, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. Now, I want you to stop right there and think about that statement. God's invisible attributes are clearly seen. It almost sounds like the writer's trying to be funny a little bit. So there are things that you can't see about God, his invisible attributes, that are clearly seen. Well, okay, what's the deal here? How in the world are you going to tell me there are things that you can't see about God, but you can actually clearly see them? You can't see a person's foot, 
But if you have the footprint, what can you in your mind clearly see? Well, the five toes and the arch and the heel. So you never see the person's foot, but you can really clearly see. That's what's going on here. There are things about God that you can clearly see being understood by the things which are made. You can look at the material world and know some very serious, right, correct things about how this material world got here. And what is it you can know about God, even his eternal power and Godhead? And so let's take a scientific approach. And the scientific approach is going to say, what do we know scientifically to be the case? And I'm going to start with the most fundamental scientific law that is, the use, that is used in every single experiment ever done. It's the law of cause and effect. Here's what it says. That in this material world, when you see a material effect, it always, in every case, now there's a reason that a scientific law is a scientific law. There's never been an exception to it ever once seen in the history of all experimentation in all of scientific disciplines, ever. If there ever was, it would not be a law anymore. Law of cause and effect simply says this. If you see a material effect in our universe, or, or anywhere, you see a material effect, the cause is greater than it and came before it or was simultaneous to it. Now, let's think about that. Let me see what we've got here. If we have a book... Yes, I think we do. Okay, now work with me. All right, so for our purposes here, we're going to have a little hypothetical situation that you are listening very, very intently to what I'm saying. And you're not thinking about what's for lunch. You're not thinking about the chores and things that you needed to do this morning, but you didn't get done because you decided to come. You're not thinking about any of that. Now, like I said, this is hypothetical, but work with me. You can... You can do this. And so you're listening to what I say, and all of a sudden this songbook shoots across the room going 100 miles an hour, smashes into the exit sign, crashes the exit sign into 182 pieces, the songbook into 787 pages. Your eyes get as big as saucers, and you turn and look at me, and you say, Kyle, what caused that? And with a straight face, I say, nothing. Sometimes songbooks spontaneously shoot themselves across rooms going 100 miles an hour into the back exit wall. Do, do you know that I have been using this illustration for probably 20 years? And in every single instance, every one to my knowledge that I can remember, people always chuckle when I say, no cause, sometimes songbooks spontaneously shoot themselves across rooms at 100 miles an hour. Because that sounds funny to you, doesn't it? But what if I then insisted, no, no, I'm, I'm serious. Sometimes songbooks do shoot themselves across rooms at 100 miles an hour. You see, still you would have a real problem with me suggesting that because it doesn't make any scientific sense. You see, scientifically, we know how matter, how physical things work, and we know that every single material effect has to have a cause that came before it and was greater than it. We know that. We know it intuitively because we deal with that every single day. If you see a songbook fall, you know that something caused that. And especially if you see one defying the 
forces of gravity where it would fall straight down and it shoots across a room going 100 miles an hour. You know something's going on there. And for a person to suggest to you with any type of seriousness that, hey, we just have this small effect, a songbook going across a room, we just have that one that doesn't have a cause. Well, that, that just doesn't make sense to us. But then we ask the simple question, okay, according to that materialistic, atheistic idea that there was a tiny singularity about the size of a well, 10 to the negative 26 centimeters across, what caused that? Where did it come from? What originated the first stuff? Do you know that when you look into the literature from the atheistic perspective, the answer to where that stuff came from well, I'll tell you. The man that you are probably the most familiar with, he's a theoretical physicist named Stephen Hawking. Now, he was. He's the late Stephen Hawking. He has passed away since the time that he wrote this book called The Grand Design. But in The Grand Design, he was struggling with a problem that he had about our universe. And the problem that he had with our universe was it looks very much like it's been designed. It looks like it's perfect for humans to live on planet Earth. He can't understand how that happened from a huge explosion. And so when he then originally, a couple books before this grand design book, he left open the idea that there might be a God who kind of set it up. And his atheistic colleague said, you can't do that. You've got to fix your problem there. You've got to write it better so that there's no possibility that, that God can be interjected into the process. And so he writes this grand design book, and he still struggles with the problem of where that original stuff comes from. And here's what he eventually concludes. With all of his theoretical physics involved and all of his colleagues pushing him to define this idea completely naturalistically, here's what he says. He says, stars don't spontaneously pop into existence from nothing. Okay, thank you. You know, we appreciate that. We figured as much. He said black holes don't spontaneously pop into existence from nothing. But entire universes do. The world's leading theoretical physicist with a very, very serious straight face said to you, well, the answer to this is the law of cause and effect doesn't work on that original stuff and the original thing popped into existence from nothing. Now, if you didn't like my explanation about a songbook launching across that room at 100 miles an hour without a cause, what in the world are you going to do when the answer to how the universe originated is that it defied the most fundamental scientific law in existence? It just popped into existence from nothing. Folks, if there ever were a time when there was nothing, what would you have now? You know, Aristotle said nothing is what rocks dream about. You know, nothing is nothing. You don't get a songbook shooting across a room from nothing. And you certainly don't get a universe like ours from nothing. Nothing, and yet, 
what we're told is that the idea of a supernatural creator is not scientific, but the idea that an entire universe can pop into existence from nothing, defying everything we know about the material world. See, here's the problem. The atheistic philosophy understands that we know matter doesn't do that, but in order to have a universe, we have to have something that did do that. And so they know that the original whatever it was can't act like matter, and so they say, well, this little ball of something, it's material, but it doesn't act like matter. Okay, what's it act like? Well, it acts like super matter. It doesn't act, it's natural, but it doesn't act like nature. Oh, well, what's it act like? Well, it acts like supernature. You're saying there was something at the beginning that didn't follow the rules of the material universe. Yeah, why? Well, what they're saying is, well, it was material, but it didn't act like matter. Ah, oh, so you need something at the beginning that doesn't act material. It needs to be super matter. It needs to be super natural. Oh, okay. So what you really need is something that's always been there. You need something that's eternal, and you know matter's not. And so you need a supernatural. And then the response is, well, hold on just a second. Okay, if we know that the law of cause and effect says that for every material effect there was a cause that came before and that was greater than it, then what is the cause of God? Well, hold on just a second. Listen to the definition. You know, sometimes a single word makes a real big difference. If a husband were to go to his wife and say, I love you, not. It changes the definition of the term, doesn't it? It changes everything you mean about that. Remember what we said the law of cause and effect deals with because we formulate the law based on every experiment we do in the physical world. We know what matter acts like. We know that matter needs a cause. It's a material effect. But the reason that the original thing could not be matter is because, well, that original thing has to act more than matter. It has to act super matter. And the reason that God is the best explanation is because nobody's ever said that God is matter. God is a spirit. God is super matter. God is supernatural. He's outside of the material world. And so the concept of the law of cause and effect that we've formulated based on everything we've done in the material world wouldn't apply to God because he's not a physical material effect. And incidentally, everybody recognizes that you need something that doesn't act like matter to start with. And here's the sleight of hand from the atheistic proposition. Okay, everything in the universe is material. This singularity is material. It just doesn't act like it. Well, what's it act like? Well, it acts like something that's super material. Oh, from the beginning of creation, God's invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things which made even his eternal power. You see, you've got to have something that's always been there, and matter can't be it. So what is it? An eternal spiritual being is the best explanation. Well, it's not a scientific explanation because you can't touch, see, taste, hear, or smell it. Have you ever touched, seen, tasted, hear, heard, or smelled an entity that is supposedly matter but doesn't act like it? No, you haven't. And you've been saying that's a scientific idea for the last 
three decades. You've got to have something supernatural at the beginning. Now, here's the next aspect of the law of cause and effect. You have to have something that's big enough. Let's go back to my little illustration and say, okay, you guys are listening intently and you're finding this riveting information. You're thinking it's uh, amazing and you wish you had invited all of your friends to this instead of just the one that's sitting beside you. And the next time something like this happens, four years from now, you're going to make sure that they all do come and boom, all of a sudden, songbook shoots across the room, going 100 miles an hour, smashes into the exit sign. You turn and look at me and say, Kyle, what caused that? This time I do not give you the ridiculous idea that nothing caused it, that it spontaneously shot across the room at 100 miles an hour. This time I say, here's what caused that. As I was talking, a tiny speck of dust landed right on the edge of the songbook, catapulted it across the room at 100 miles an hour. Now we have a cause that came before it, the speck of dust landing on it, but you're still not convinced, are you? But why? Because the cause is not big enough for the effect. You have to have a cause that's big enough, that's great enough, that has the power to bring about the effect. And so, what is our effect we're trying to deal with? The effect that we're dealing with is the physical universe where we live. The cause has to be big enough to bring into existence the physical effect of the universe. Well, how big is that? You know, that's a really good question. How big is the physical universe? Uh, let's just do a little study on this for the next very few minutes. We live in the Milky Way galaxy. I'm always excited about the Milky Way galaxy. The reason I love the Milky Way galaxy is because it's one named after a candy bar and not the other like Andromeda or Galaxy GX305 or anything like that. It's real easy to remember. So we live in the Milky Way galaxy. Several years ago, they suggested to us that there are 100 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Now, let's try to put that number into perspective just a little bit. 100 billion. If you got up in the morning and you counted to 10,000 every day, and every one of those numbers represented a star, you get up in the morning, you count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, you count it as fast as you can. 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and every one of those represents a star. Now, a little bit more perspective. Those stars are anywhere from the smallest to the largest star. Our sun is an average middle-sized star. You can put one million Earths inside of the sun. Now, if you've ever flown in an airplane, you've been 30,000 feet up, and you've looked down on the Earth, you realize it's a massive, huge place. And you can take one million Earths and put it inside of the sun. There are some stars out there that are 1,400 times bigger than the sun, so you can put 1,400 suns into those large stars, which means you could put 1.4 billion Earths inside of some of those stars. And every time you count 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, that represents a star that is approximately a million times bigger than the Earth. And you're counting 10,000 of those every day. Now, why in the world would you wake up in the morning and want to count? I, I, don't, I don't know. My son, my oldest son, when he was about, I think, four or five, he would get up earlier than my wife and I, maybe on a Saturday. And one day he got up and said, I said, Drew, what'd you do this morning? He said, well, I got up and counted. I said, really, what'd you count to? He said, 3,000. You ever got up on a Saturday 
and the sun streaming through your blinds, and you thought, it would be a great day to count. I'm going to count to eh, 3,000. I said, what did you count? He said, nothing, just counted. You know, that, that hasn't been one of the activities I've involved myself in early in the morning, counting. However, as I have traveled the country, I had one other little girl. She was about nine, and she came up to me. She said, you know, that counting, I, I do that. Oh, okay, maybe you're a counter. More power to you. That's exciting. I don't know what the highest number you've ever counted to is in one setting, but 10,000 a day. Every one of them represents a star. Count for a year. It's going to be, what, about 365,000 you've counted, and then count for two years. You're getting right about 720, 30,000 or so. Then count for three. Then count. Do you know how long it's going to take you to count to 100 billion, counting 10,000 every single day? Well, several years ago, they said it was going to take you, because they estimated that there were 100 billion stars in our Milky Way galaxy, they said it would take you a little over 27,000 years. I don't think you have that kind of time. I mean, some of you have been members of this congregation for 40, 50 60 years maybe, but 27,000 years is going to stretch how much time you have to get to that. So you're talking about 27,000 years, counting 10,000 every day, and a lot of those stars are 1.4 billion times the size of the earth. It's pretty big. Oh, and then they came out and said, you know what, we, we missed something. Now, I drive a 2006 GMC Sierra with about 240,000 miles on. Now, this is not a commercial for a GMC Sierra. It's a commercial for why you need to wash your vehicle. And I have never felt like a clean vehicle was necessary. My wife keeps hers spotless. I do not. And my philosophy on vehicle cleaning is pick up all of the junk so you don't have to move it if somebody needs to sit in it. And so I feel like if I have five seats in my truck and I don't have trash in those seats and five people can get in it, then we're good to go. Well, my wife the other day said, Kyle, we're going to have to stop taking your truck to worship on Sunday mornings. I said, why? I mean, there's plenty of room to sit down. She said, yeah, but, but when I sit down, my clothes get dirty. You, you haven't cleaned it in forever. And I looked around and thought, you know, you're right, babe. I have, I have not cleaned my truck. And so I'm going to. So I had always thought my truck was blue, took it to the car wash, come to find out it's blazing red. It's not even blue at all. Okay, no, that's, that's an exaggeration. But what, took the truck to the car wash, washed it, and here, did you, did you know that right behind that steering wheel there's this piece of plexiglass that if you wipe it off, there's information behind it that tells you about what you're doing on the road, like how your tachometer tells you the RPMs of your vehicle. You can even see the speed limit there, and you get the, the speed, the odometer, and, and then you can see how many miles are on your vehicle, all kinds of stuff. And you just got to wipe off that dust, and you can see it real clear. Come to find out my engine light's been on for 40,000 miles. Didn't even know. No, I knew that, actually, when I got it. But you know what I'm talking about. That, that dust, it, I cleared that off. Boy, it looked like a brand-new vehicle, at least from the plexiglass piece there right behind my truck. The dents and stuff didn't fix washing them, but here's the point. We forgot to calculate space dust. In our discussion of the Milky Way galaxy, the people who were looking out into the Milky Way galaxy said, you know what, we've been saying there's 100 billion stars out there, but if you wipe off our lens real good and then calculate how much dirt is in the galaxy, then you realize we were off. We actually think there are three to four times as many stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Oh, 
Okay, so now you don't have to count for 27,000 years to count the stars in the Milky Way galaxy, some of which are 1.4 billion times the size of the Earth. You have to count not 54,000 years. You have to count 81,000 years, 10,000 every single day, to count the stars in the Milky Way galaxy. Oh, and then they said, you know, by the way, that's just one galaxy. Out of how many? Well, right now we're saying 100 billion. You know, what's interesting to me is that number never goes down. They never say, oh, we thought it was 100 billion. Actually, it's only 1,000. No, it continues to go up. So we've got a galaxy that has possibly 300 billion stars in it, some of which are 1.4 billion times the size of the Earth, and that's one galaxy. Now start counting 10,000 every single day. It's going to take you 27,000 years to count the number of galaxies. And what are we told brought a universe this big into existence? A tiny piece of matter that didn't act like matter that popped into existence from nothing that was 10 to the negative 26 centimeters across that you couldn't even see. You know, number one, it violates the first aspect of the law of cause and effect. Material doesn't pop into existence from nothing. And number two, it's not big enough. What did the writer of... Romans say that you can clearly see from the things which are made, even his eternal power. You have to have an entity that is virtually unlimited in power, that is all-powerful, and a tiny singularity doesn't do that. What does? A supernatural, all-powerful creator. And then there's one other interesting and fun aspect about creation that you can clearly see that we know from every interaction we've ever had with material stuff, some things work and some things don't. Some things do happen, some things don't happen. Let me show you what I mean by that. We're told from the atheistic proposition that a huge explosion brought the universe into existence. Well, what would happen if you really blew something up? you got a 16-year-old, he's talking to his mom and says, hey, mom, I'd like to go to the movies. Mom says, okay, no problem. But you know your rooms are wet. If you want to go to the movies, you're going to need to clean your room. And I know how long it takes you to clean your room, and I know how dirty your room is. You're going to have to dust it, vacuum it, the whole nine. And he says, okay, no problem, mom, I got it. She says, what time do you want to go to the movies? He said, seven. She said, all right. And as long as your room's clean, you can go by seven. You know, 530 rolls around, and she thinks, oh, he's pushing it. It's a pretty dirty room. Six o'clock rolls around. She thinks, eh, he is not going. Six thirty rolls around. She goes to him. She says, I thought you wanted to go to the movies. You hadn't even touched your room. He said, Mom, I got it under control. I thought we had a deal. I clean my room. I get to go to the movies. She said, yeah, but I know how dirty your room is, and it's not going to get clean in 30 minutes. He said, Mom, got it under control. 6.45 rolls around. She says, fine, you're not going to the movies. He said, Mom, I still got 15 minutes. She said, yeah, but I know how long it's going to take you to clean your room. Mom, I got this. Five till seven rolls around. She watches him walk up the steps. Unbeknownst to her, he piles everything into the center of his room, pulls out a stick of dynamite, shoves it underneath it, lights it, walks up. <laughs> she does not know what in the world has happened. She runs up the stairs expecting to find a big gaping hole where his room once was. She throws open the door, and what does she see? Everything is perfect. 
all of the clothes that have been piled in the middle of the room, the ones that are supposed to be folded, have been folded and separated into socks, underwear, and T-shirts, and then shorts and pants. Somehow in the explosion, the Chester drawers, I know if you've looked on Facebook Marketplace, some people actually call them a Chester drawer. No, it's a chest of drawers, but anyway, it pops out, and those clothes fold and land into the chest of drawers perfectly. All of the shirts that needed hanging, somehow the hangers flopped off. The clothes that needed to be hung somehow hit those hangers perfectly so that when those hangers bounce back onto the big closet hanging place they hung there perfectly all the shoes are matched perfectly exactly the he walks out goes to the movies and everybody knows that's how 16 year olds clean their room except they don't well he didn't have enough dynamite so he just needs a bigger stick of dynamite just needs a bigger explosion like a bigger explosion would make it more orderly no several more explosions okay it didn't work the first time let's try it another 20. no what do we know about explosions? It's real simple. It's real commonsensical. It's, it's nothing that takes a rocket surgeon to figure out. It's something that you can see happens in every single interaction with explosions. They never cause order. They always lead to more disorder. You blow up your room and now there's more cleaning you've got to do. It's not like, oh, that helped me move toward less dirty. No, that blew stuff up and now you do more to get it back right. And yet we're told that this little entity that popped into existence from nothing, violating the first aspect of the law of cause and effect, and then was so tiny that somehow it brought into a universe that's 100 billion galaxies strong, some of which have 300 billion stars in them, and our galaxy is a middle-sized galaxy. There are probably some that have 600 billion stars in them. And that tiny bit of something brought the entire universe into existence and the explanation as to how that happened was that it blew up. And yet, do you know that scientists explain to us that it looks like they can't figure it out, they don't understand it, but it looks like our universe is perfectly designed for humans to live on planet Earth. In fact, they say that we're in the Goldilocks zone. You know what Goldilocks zone means. You remember Goldilocks? The three bears, you know, they had gotten up and they had decided they were going to eat some porridge. And that's where I was lost in the story right there on the porridge. You know, right there I thought, yeah, I'd be leaving my house too if I was eating porridge for breakfast. Because, you know, not to, not to, my mother, bless her wonderful Christian great heart is an awesome woman. She travels around, does ladies' day. She has worked in Lord's Kingdom for years. And she says, I'm not remembering this correctly. But when, when I was growing up, she made oatmeal for us. And it wasn't the individual packages of oatmeal that come pre-sweetened with the dried fruit in it. No, no, this was the straight old-fashioned oatmeal that took from, from a kid's perspective, it felt like it took 38 minutes to fix in the morning. And she would make it in a pan on top of the stove. And she would put the spoon in there. And I just remember in my mind a sound that would come from the oatmeal that it would come out in a cylindric shape, the shape of the pan. And then she would just kind of flop it around and... You know, I remember we would put as much milk and butter, and she finally had to say, okay, that's enough sugar, that's enough. You 
to make it not taste like oatmeal. And then whatever's left, we just feed the cows and the horses out back with it because, you know, it's oats. Okay, like I said, I, I exaggerate. But the porridge, you know, I feel like the three bears looked at that cylindric whatever. I see I've never had porridge. I don't know what's different about that than oatmeal, but that's how I have it in my mind. So the three bears come to it, and it's too hot, and they decide they're going for a walk. And they do. And then Goldilocks comes in. She tries daddy bear's porridge too hot, mama bear's porridge too cold, but baby bears, just right. Tries the chairs in the living room, daddy bear's too hard, mama bear's too soft. Baby bears, just right. Tries the beds upstairs, daddy bear's too hard, mama bear's too soft. Baby bears, just right. The atheistic scientists who work on studying our universe say, we don't know what the deal is. But it looks like planet Earth and all of the rules that govern the universe are just right. Well, what do you mean? I'm just going to give you one example of the just rightness of the process. There are four forces, basically, in our universe. The strong atomic force, the weak atomic force, the electromagnetic force, and the force of gravity. And here's what we are told. That if any of those was slightly different, any of those changed to the tiniest fraction, everything that we know in the universe would be totally different. It wouldn't really even exist as we have it. You wouldn't have life. You wouldn't have the things we have. But they say that electromagnetic force and the force of gravity are so closely calibrated that if you changed it by this fraction, now work with me, if you have 0.1, that's one-tenth. So that means if you had a, a pie that was cut into 10 pieces, you would have one of those. 0.01 is 100. You now have a pie that's cut into 100 pieces. If you took one of those, there would be 99 left. Okay, 0.001 is 1,000. You now have that same pie. It's cut into 1,000 parts. You have one of those. Now, 0.00001, 110,000, right? So you now have something that's cut into 10,000 parts. You take one of them. Keep going down the line. That if you changed the force of gravity or the electromagnetic force by point zero 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 to the fortieth decimal place. If you altered it that much, the entire universe as we know it would not be in existence as it is today. And they say, I mean, we don't know how that happens. A big explosion brought a universe that looks perfect. We have one guy on record who is not a creationist, but says, I mean, it looks like some super intellect's been monkeying with the physics. Huh. A super intellect has been monkeying with the physics to make a universe that is perfect for humans to live on planet Earth. And that came from an, an explosion? You see the problem. And the problem is we do have a scientific explanation. But it's not a natural one. It's not an explanation that forces itself to not deal with what answers the question the best. It's scientific in the sense that it's the best explanation. 
And so what I'd like to suggest to you is that there is a very good scientific explanation for how this universe got here. And only one very good scientific explanation for how this universe got here. And in the beginning, God created is the most powerful and accurate scientific explanation for the origination of our universe and to date there has never been a single scientific discovery that would contradict that statement and every single one of them when looked at with the proper perspective and the right desire for real truth forces you to conclude that the things which we see here in this world point clearly to something we don't see. And it's not a tiny singularity that popped into existence from nothing that blew up and brought into existence a perfectly calibrated, exact, perfect universe. It's a supernatural, eternal person named God. Thank you so much for being here. You have been a very gracious listening audience, and I appreciate your time. You could have done anything that you wanted to today. You chose to be with us to consider these very important ideas, and I am glad that you have made that decision. Let me make a couple of statements. On the back, we have things for sale. Now, I'm going to explain to you that at Apologetics Press, we are non-profit. And what I mean by that is there's no possible way we can ever function from sales and we don't ever even try to. In fact, we don't ever want any type of monetary idea to get in the way of people getting the information that they need. And on our website, we have been going now for about 40 years or so, 1979, 42, 43 or so. Almost everything we've got is absolutely completely free. You can download it off our website. All the books, most everyone is in a PDF form. You can download it off of the website for free. We have all of our videos absolutely free that you can watch or download off of the website. All of our articles, it's all free. Some people, like me, still like a book. I like to have one in my hand. I like to be able to write on it and talk to the author and tell them, yeah, I appreciate that. No, that's not right. Here's why. And so if you want a physical book, they are back there and they have prices on them. And if there's a little kid's book, a little reader book, it's two bucks. If you want it, fine. If you don't have two bucks and you have one, okay, fine. Give them a dollar, they'll give it to you. If you don't have a dollar, take the book. We do not care. This has nothing whatsoever to do with money, and it has nothing whatsoever to do with how really we even fund our operations. Most of the funding that comes to us is from people who see what we do and donate money to us. We do that because, hey, it costs something to print something. But if you don't have the money to cover it, don't worry about it, and you need a book or want a book, take it. If you have 10 people at your school that you think need one of those books and you don't have, okay, take 10 of them. We don't care. We just want you to get the information you need to understand the truth that there is a God, to understand how to teach that truth in an effective way, and that's all we're trying to do at Apologetics Press. Now, there is a resource back there that to me is one of the most exciting resources we've ever put out. They're so large that we can't really ship them, and so I just brought a couple of them on the plane for you to see. Several years ago, people asked us about a study Bible. They said, hey, is there any study Bible that you would recommend? And every study Bible we knew had material in it that we would not recommend. And we couldn't really go through all of them and say, yeah, I would recommend this one, but these pages... 
So about 10 years ago, we started work on an eight-year project that culminated about two years ago in the first study Bible ever done by members of the Lord's Church. And so we have a couple of copies out there, the genuine leather, and then we have a duotone binding. The material in them is the same, it's just a different binding. And it is the first 2,500-page full-color study Bible that has been done in Lord's Church. It is filled with the stuff that we're doing this weekend, as well as all of the Christian evidences for the inspiration of the Bible, the stuff on... Okay, how can a loving God allow there to be a hell? How do we know Jesus is God's son? And church organization, plan of salvation, all of it is in there. And it's a study Bible that we can wholeheartedly recommend because we were the ones that edited it and put it together. And so it's been our most widely used resource since we have been at Apologetics Press. In the last two years, we've printed about 32,000 of them. And if you put that in perspective, our most popular books may be distributed to the tune of 1,000 or 1,500 a year. And so you're looking at this being 30 times more widely distributed than anything we've done. And I would suggest to you that it is something that you, once you see it, will realize every high school graduate needs one of these. Your friends at work need one of these. And we will work with you on getting them anywhere you can. We had a person contact us from Africa. They say, hey, we were doing a preaching school here. We need 500 of them. Another guy who was going to ship them said, well, I got a preaching school too. I need another 250. So we recently shipped 750 of them over to Nigeria that are going to be used in the preaching schools there. And we will work with anybody on any place that they need any of our material. And I would like to commend and thank the elders for letting me get to be here and their foresight in dealing with these topics because what we're going to find out, especially Sunday morning, is what we discussed this morning in this session, that material is some of the material that if young people don't get before they leave high school, then they ultimately leave the faith. And your elders having me here to present this and provide that type of information is something that I literally believe will save the faith of many of your young people in this congregation, and I commend you for that. Thank you very much. Looking forward to our other three sessions this afternoon. We are scheduled for lunch in about 20 minutes, and so I've asked Kyle if he wouldn't mind taking a few questions. If you have a question, then raise your hand, and uh, he will uh, uh, repeat the question and then uh, respond to it accordingly. And in about 10 minutes or so, uh, we'll go ahead and have a prayer before we go across for lunch. Thanks, Kyle. We'll work this. Uh, there's just one. I do question and answers all over. The country, just one simple rule, I always lay it down at the beginning, that you can only ask questions that I know the answer to. So, you know, we get that laid down and the question and answer goes, great. If you have any questions about anything we'll be dealing with, lots of times it will be a question about something we might deal with in another session and I'll say, hey, we'll look at that in another session or something along those lines. So, what questions might you have? Yes, sir. Okay.
Okay. Great. Okay, so he said he has always loved astronomy, and he has always wanted to be an astronomer, but he knows that lots of people in that field are atheistic and do not have any type of faith and belief in God. So how could he stay in that? Well, interestingly, at World Video Bible School, there's a guy by the name of Branyan May who has a Ph.D. in astrophysics from the University of Alabama who is working there with World Video Bible School. That's where we do a lot of our filming. And he has definitely kept his faith very strong through that. You have to... I, I think the answer to that is real simply, I'm going to follow the evidence where it leads. Now, here's going to be the challenge. And this is the challenge for all of us. What we believe is not popular, and it never will be. And it will never be the accepted belief of the scholarly world. It will never be the accepted belief of the greater religious world. And God told us that. that that's not new. When you go to the book of 1 Corinthians, there in the first couple chapters, he says not many wise, not many noble, not many of the higher-ups in the world are going to be Christians. And what you're going to find out is that in circles like that, in 80%, now this is a fact, this is your, this is your statistic, well, last I checked, 80% of your college and university professors are atheistic. And so if you go to a place where 8 out of 10 of your professors are atheistic and you are walking into that situation telling them, hey, I believe in God, which is totally contradictory to what you believe, and they have spent years of their life getting their Ph.D. in this field of study that they've been trying to basically write God out of the equation, and you walk in as an 18-year-old and say, hey, I know there's a God you don't. It's going to come across to them as just very uh, arrogant, they will think. And they will say, well, I've got a Ph.D. in astronomy, and my understanding of astronomy shows that there can't be a God, and there's no reason for a God except it. So what I'm suggesting to you is talk to people who have done it. And I've got several. Uh, my contact card is on the back of the table. It's got my email address. It's got my phone number on it. And I'll be more than happy to put you in contact with people that can help you with that situation. But... My next statement is it will not be easy and the belief in Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven and the belief that God created this world out of nothing is always going to be unpopular. And that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus Christ said if they hated me, they're going to hate you. And I know many people, I know several people, I can talk to, tell you several right now, who wanted to go get a PhD in a certain subject and basically, they went in and said, I'm a creationist. I believe in God. And the professor said, well, you'll never get a PhD here. And just didn't let them. And so it, it might be that you will run into real serious opposition there. Now, don't let that stop you from doing something you love because at Answers in Genesis, there's a guy by the name of Jason Lyle who is an astronomer and has basically spent his life showing how astronomy testifies to the existence of God. And I think you go to Psalm 19.1 where it says, The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, night unto night utters knowledge. The fact of the matter is, the stuff that the atheistic evolutionary community has stolen from God to use to teach atheism, like the stars and like dinosaurs and things of that nature, I think we creationists should take them back and say, well, hold on just a second. What were the stars originally designed to do? 
Well, they're originally designed for you to look up into the night sky and realize there's something bigger than you, and that something bigger than you is not a star. It's bigger than all the stars. It's a supernatural creator. So I think you definitely could pursue that field of study. You'll run into a lot of opposition, but I think that God would help you use that information to bring glory to him if that's what you chose to do. Real good question. Other questions? Yes, sir. Yes, yes, I do. Uh, he said, what are we looking at along the lines of losing our young people as they go off to college? The Sunday morning sermon is designed specifically to answer that question. Now, I'll give you the brief answer. And the brief answer is, in religious circles in the United States of America today, if you call yourself Christian in any shape, form, or fashion, any denomination or Catholic, anything, you're losing six out of ten of your young people from age 13 to 18, ten years after they leave. So 60% of young people are leaving the faith. Now, in the Lord's Church, it's about 40%. And so we're doing better than average but I always look at that and think, what do you like better, getting punched in the nose or the stomach? Yeah, I don't like either. And so just because, okay, we're only losing 40% of our young people and some other people are losing 60, okay, we're doing better. Well, if you lost 40% of your arm instead of, you know, 60% of it, you'd still be real troubled about how to fix that. And we'll be talking about that Sunday morning and looking at what are the causes of that and how we can cut that percentage and those numbers down. But that's what you're dealing with at the present. Very good question. Other questions? I mean, we can play the Jeopardy music for you, if that will help you. Do, 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 do. Yes, sir. Great question. He said, we've talked to scientists, we have debated scientists, do we have any success in convincing them that they need to reevaluate their work? Uh, yes and no. It's a really great question. Let me give you how I normally end that lesson that I just did, but I was running out of time. Uh, in 1976, a guy by the name of Thomas B. Warren, some of you might remember his name, he debated a man by the name of Anthony Flew. And Anthony Flew, at the time, was literally the world's leading atheist. This was in 1976 in Denton, Texas. In fact, about anywhere I go, especially in Texas, some people actually were at the debate there in 1976. I was not, considering the fact that I had not been born until later that year, but some people <laughs> actually were there at the debate. And it was very interesting. Anthony Flew was, was literally the world's leading atheist. He had written a paper called Theology and Falsification that still today, if I understand it right, is the most widely distributed, downloaded, atheistic, philosophical paper ever written. Still is, ever written. 
And so he was the perfect spokesman for atheism. And Thomas B. Warren had a Ph.D. in the philosophy of, I think, philosophy of science from Vanderbilt. I know it was philosophy of something. And so he was a very good representative from the Lord's Church to defend our belief in the creation and existence of God. And in the course of it, he used all kinds of very logical arguments. One of those was the argument from design that basically said when you see things that are designed, you know there had to be an intelligent designer. And, of course, Flew at the time said, no, you don't. You know, you have to have a designer for a prosthetic hand, but you don't need one for a real hand. And when asked why, of course, he couldn't give an explanation for that. But I say all that to say, then in 2006, Anthony Flew came out with a book titled, There Is No God. And the no was marked out. And the real title was, There Is A God, How the World's Most Notorious Unbeliever became a believer. And in 2006, he was 81 years old, I think, and he said, my philosophy always has been to look at the evidence and follow the argument where it leads. He said, I am absolutely convinced now, beyond the shadow of doubt, there's no possible way that a reasonable person can look at the evidence from DNA and design and the intricacies of the natural world and not conclude that there is a supernatural, all-powerful, eternal, intelligent creator. He said, the evidence has forced me to do that over a period of 40 years. And so if you had asked Thomas B. Warren, hey, did you have any effect on this man? The answer to that from his lifetime would probably have been, no, it doesn't look like it, because I think Brother Warren died in 2000, 2001, maybe 2002. I don't remember exactly when, but before this book came out, but then 40 years later, Anthony Flew comes out and says, hey, yes, the evidence points to a God. I've been wrong for the last 40 years. Now, admittedly, the atheistic community did not take that sitting down, and they said he's a senile man who's about to die, and he's trying to hedge his bets because he's about to go to the other side, and he doesn't want to not have at least some possibility that there is a God. And what was interesting to me was Flew came back and demolished every one of their arguments, like Richard Dawkins and lots of the people who were attacking him, and Flew said, oh, it's so interesting that the, the troop of toleration is not very tolerant when you're on the other side of that. And now that I've said I believe in God, I'm getting all kinds of you know, persecution in a lot of different ways. And here's why they're wrong. And he dissected all of their arguments and just demolished them. So it's interesting to me that in the last 20 years, the world's leading atheist came out and said, atheism can't work. And we all know it. And the atheistic community knows it. And they're just waiting to, to fix it, but they're not going to. So, yeah, sometimes you do. However, my response, my real response to that would be, they're generally not the target audience. And what I mean by that is a calloused atheistic debater like Dan Barker, who's been in a hundred debates and has said things about God that literally my brother was sitting on the, the like second row of our debate and he said he thought lightning was going to strike right there and just felt just terribly uncomfortable with some of the stuff Dan Barker was saying. And if you've watched the debate, you understand what he's talking about. Okay, you're probably never going to convert Dan Barker. The Bible talks about how some people are so calloused that it's not that God won't accept their repentance if they did repent, but they have calloused their hearts so much that it's beyond them ever repenting. They just will not do it. And so the real target audience, the real target audience is when you have 100,000 people 
who are, you know, you got a, a full audience of 1,500 people at the auditorium where you are, and you got 60,000 more screens watching it, and some of them are congregations that have all gotten together to watch it together. So you got 100,000 people watching it. The real target audience is the college group and the teenage group that's wanting to know, will Christians stand up and in a kind, loving, intelligent, reasonable way say, I know there's a God. Here's why. I can prove it. You might not accept it, but that doesn't change that it's factual. And so lots of times your real target audience is the listeners and the watchers and especially the younger people that are really viewing that. And it's interesting to me that of all the stuff I've done, and now, of course, the Lord gets credit. I'm not trying to, to brag about anything. But of all the things that I've done, the three debates that I have done when I show up at a place, oh, hey, I watched your debate. Oh, you know, what about the book I did on the inspiration of the Bible? What about that? Well, the debates, for some reason, are just much more interesting to people because they really want to see, okay, when a Christian stands up against a person who's a very educated atheist, how does the Christian respond to this? And I want to be able to do that, so I'm going to watch this person and see how they do it. And so that's lots of times your target audience. Really good question. Yes, Okay, very good question. He said, hey, I've got 55 minutes that I can stand up here and talk to everybody, and I can explain it all, and nobody even gets to talk back. And so, yeah, that's real good for you, Kyle. But I'm talking to one of my colleagues at work while we're waiting for a ride, and I've got two minutes, and they are an atheist, and I am trying to just plant a little seed in their mind. What would I say to that person that might get them to start thinking about God? You know, I think it's so interesting that the most fundamental arguments are still the very best. The, our argument from design. Every time you see something that is functional and complex, you know it had a designer. If you walk into the woods and you see a watch, you know there was a watchmaker. If you find a computer on the beach, you know that there was a computer designer. And so I think that that still is the very strongest argument for the existence of God. And I think there are a lot of strong ones. But when the Bible says every house is built by someone, but he who built all things is God, you're walking through the woods and you see a house that has electricity and plumbing, etc. You never think, oh, that's naturalistic processes. And so I would just suggest that, hey, I know that you don't believe in God, but in your world experience, have you ever seen something designed that didn't have an intelligent designer behind it? Now, I think also those questions are very bedrock to a person's personality. They identify themselves as an atheist. And to look at you and say, oh, yeah, okay, the thing, what I've thought for the last 10 years is wrong. You just changed my mind in two minutes. That's great. That's not happening. That, that just won't happen. So what we've seen have the very best, luck's not the word, the very best approach or effectiveness is have a card or something that will take them to our website or a good website on Christian apologetics. 
and let them in their own free time and in a what they would consider a safe environment study the stuff. Say, hey, you know, I've always found the design argument very effective. I don't know if you've really looked at the science behind it, but this website's got all kinds of stuff on it. And you get them to our website, and what we have found is a lot of people that come to that website come as unbelievers or searching unbelievers, and they, they've always thought one way. And when they get there, they start looking at the stuff and realize, oh, th these, guys aren't, these guys aren't saying you just need to believe the Bible because your mom said it. You just need to believe in creation because they're given scientific evidence for it. And then what we find happens lots of times is that they'll come looking for that scientific evidence. They literally will change their minds. And then we've had people say, and by the way, while I was there, saw your stuff on the Bible and the plan of salvation, and I became a Christian. I'm worshiping at this congregation. And so my best approach there, get you a little card, one of our cards back there. We, we sell some cards, or we'll ship them to you for free, that are just, here's cards that will take you to our website. Have you ever wondered about design in God? Says something like that. And just say, hey, you know, I feel like this could really make a difference in your life. Give them the card, and then they can get there on their own and, and do some research. We've got one more question, and that will time us out, I think. Yes, sir. No, I, I don't like it either. In fact, it's, it's, I mean, it's one of the most tragic things you'll ever see. I was at a congregation that was, I was in uh, Ypsilanti, Michigan last weekend, and the congregation, we had 80 to 100 each night, which was really good for that particular congregation. They had about 75 on Sunday mornings. And while I was there, I think two or three people came to me and said, one of them both of their kids are no longer faithful. They brought them up in the Lord's church, and they left because of these things. Another one said something almost identical to that. One of the situations was a person's spouse. And so this is not a statistic idea. This, is, this really happens in places about every place I go. A heartbroken parent will come to me and say, man, I know what you're talking about, and my son, my daughter, at 18, 19, 20, they started questioning left, and they've never come back. So the question is, what can you do? Now, I'd like to preface this by saying, I do believe that as a parent, you have a very large, or a grandparent, a very large impact on children and grandchildren. But also know for a fact that once a person gets to a certain age, they make their own decisions. And as I look at the interactions that God had with people in his word, you see Cain and Abel. Abel is one generation removed from the creation. Abel chooses to do right. Cain, God literally has a conversation with Cain. 
and says to him, Cain, I know you want to sin. It's, it's crouching, it's lying at the door. You've got to overcome sin. Cain basically listens to a very, it's not even a lecture, it's an encouraging discussion from God not to sin, goes out and does exactly what God tells him not to. You're not going to be able to force your kids to believe the truth. And that's just a fact. And the more that the world throws at them, the harder and harder it will be for them to hang on to their faith. However, I do believe God hasn't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. It's interesting to me that the Bible says that the Christian approach to life is one of love and sound mind, proper thinking. And I think sometimes we've been scared to say, hey, let's sit down and look at the dinosaurs. Hey, let's talk about the idea of God from a scientific perspective. And we just need to recognize, listen, when they go to universities, the university professor that's standing in front of them is going to tell them that the Bible is not God's word and is full of errors and copious mistakes and they're stupid if they believe it. That's going to happen. Don't pretend that somehow where your kids go, it's not. It will. If it doesn't happen in the sixth grade at your school, it's going to happen in the first year of their freshman college. And if it doesn't happen there, it's going to happen when they go to the job. It will happen. So, if you know that's going to happen, then I think you've just got to, to prepare your young people for that to happen. And explain to them, this will happen to you. Now, here are good answers for this. And this is not something we're afraid of. This is not something that bothers us. We have a faith based on evidence that is solid and we know it for a fact. And here's how you can respond to that. But I think so many times we've just kind of wrung our hands and said, oh, no, I hope that doesn't happen to them. And if it does, I don't know what they'll do. And maybe they'll just miss the professor that does that. Okay, well, good luck. That's probably not going to happen. But here's my next step. Here's my next step. Don't approach it like they're barely going to be able to hang on to their faith and we're scared and we just hope they make it through college with a, a tiny inkling of belief and that later after they make it through college, they'll then be able to be a force for the Lord's work and kingdom. Okay, no. I'm not going to try to hang on to my faith in college or in high school. I'm going to try to spread the truth wherever I am and stand up for my God and for His teaching through Jesus Christ. And I'm going to be bold and kind in that and I'm not going to be afraid of what people think or say to me. And so I think we've approached it from, I just hope that they can hang on to it a little bit enough, instead of saying, you've got an opportunity at that school because there are some young people who have never thought about the science behind creation. And you could show that to them. Will you stand up and be counted for your God? And I think when you embolden them to be propagators of sound thinking, then that shows them, okay, Christianity's not afraid of this stuff. We can not only defend our faith, but we can spread the truth to others, and there are people that need to know this, because when you look at the despair of atheism and the fruits of atheism that we'll discuss Sunday, people need God and Jesus Christ in their life, and they will have a better, more wonderful outcome eternally and approach and perspective here and now with that understanding. And your young people could be the one that give it to them if they approach it in a bold, kind, loving way. And I think that is one good way 
to help our young people really make a difference in the world. And, you know, explain to them, we're, we're here not to hold on to faith. We're here to make this world a better place by bringing more people to an understanding of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, and helping them to see that the Christian life is the life to live. And they really need that. So uh, that's, that's the nutshell answer. And I really do appreciate the motivation behind the question. And I will then sit down and turn it to Bill. Wow, what a, what a very powerful morning. What a great, I love your passion. I love, I love your responses. And I love the, the uh, perspective that you've given us already this morning to have a much more credible uh, understanding of our very credible faith. Um, our wonderful youth minister, uh, Tucker Sullivan, is going to come and he's going to lead us in a prayer of blessing over our food. A couple of little uh, housekeeping items uh, we will be back in here at 1 p.m. and let Kyle continue on. I believe we're going to hear about where the dinosaurs come into all of this, a little bit more about creation uh, this afternoon as it uh, compares with evolution and some things like that. So we're all really looking forward to that. We do have lunch provided. There is no charge for that. Uh, how do you get there? It is in our Family Life Center, which is on the other side of uh, West Irwin Street. And uh, there you can get there by going out these front doors and then uh, down the parking lot. Or you can go down through the hallway here behind our chapel and uh, go out the door near our children's entrance. And uh, we encourage you to do that. We'll have plenty of time. Our wonderful Connie Sublette and her crew have our lunch ready. And you'll be able to have that there. And then again, be back in here at 1 p.m. We will ask, if you can, to use the crosswalk we have Wonderful safety team here that is well-trained, keeps us safe every time we gather, and uh, they're going to be there as well. Uh, but we ask that you keep everyone safe in, in doing that. Again, there's a resource table out there, and uh, we look forward to this afternoon's uh, sessions. And uh, at this time, we're going to look forward to lunch, and Tucker will lead us, and then we'll be dismissed. Pray with me. Father God, you are so, so good, and we know that you are creator. Lord, I pray that you would just open our eyes more and more as we know from Romans 1 uh, that, that your attributes can be seen through your creation, Lord. We know that's true, and we know that it's all around us, but just open our eyes, open our hearts to be present to what's going on around us. Uh, help us to slow down to be able to see you in in the little things, in the birds, in the trees, um, the big things, the mountains, the stars. Lord, we just praise your name and we glorify you for your creation. Lord, we thank you for inviting us to know you through your creation and help us to to not praise your creation, but but to praise the creator, you. Father, we just thank you again uh, for the way that you love us and the way that you shower down your grace on us. We, we pray for the food. We pray for this time of fellowship in the meal and that it would uh, just be a blessing and, and help us to get through the rest of the day. Lord, we pray that you'll be with Kyle and Spirit, that you would empower him to speak boldly uh, the truth that you've planted. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.